Amen. We're in uh, Mark 8 this morning, and you can take your Bible and open to Mark 8. We have pew Bibles available also. We did not do much of anything with uh, October as Pastor Appreciation Month in Oneonta, so I'm somewhat unaccustomed uh, to this, but we certainly appreciate your kindness uh, in that regard. We had a, um, an important congregational meeting this last Tuesday uh, at which uh, many opinions were expressed and those thoughts and concerns are being taken into account by the elders. The elders have had an opportunity to meet. Uh, the uh, pastoral search team has not. We ask your guidance and continued prayer for us as we seek to be faithful to the Lord and responsive to God's people and uh, obedient in all that we do. We are in Mark 8, and I'd like you to turn to that passage. We're going to begin reading uh, at verse, actually at verse 11 in Mark 8, and then I'm going to kind of back up and give some context to the reading. Mark 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Be, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did, did you pick up? I can imagine this was a rather sheepish answer. Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, he said to them, do you still not understand? This morning's message is about faith and lack of faith, belief and unbelief, and the dynamics and elements involved in faith and lack of faith. Back up and keep in mind the context. In the context, in chapter 7, Jesus had been uh, in, well, he had left Galilee. He was outside of Galilee in Gentile regions. He went actually as far north as Tyre. Do I have a map that we can show? Can you see the map? It looks kind of dim to me, but it's up there. And uh, boy, Tyre, 
I'm not even sure that we can see Tyre. Uh, that might be Sidon at the top, and then beyond that black, that black dot that's right at the top uh, is Tyre. Galilee is about 40 miles to the south, so Jesus had gone as far as Tyre in the north, a city along the coast, and there in Tyre, uh, he had encountered a Syrophoenician woman uh, whose persistent pleas for her daughter who was demon-possessed were answered. And her, she, Jesus was impressed with her faith, a Gentile woman who had faith. And so her, her daughter was delivered. That was in Tyre. Jesus had gone 40 miles north to Tyre. By the way, how did Jesus get there? He didn't uh, take a bus you know, we, we read these notes in the Bible and we don't remember that everywhere he went, he walked. About 40 miles north to Tyre where he encountered this woman of faith, this Gentile, and healed her daughter. Then uh, in the region of Decapolis, in, uh, now this map does not indicate, but in the, it, Decapolis is in the Transjordan region that is uh, to the east of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Decapolis because it was a region of ten cities and it was principally Gentile. In the region of the Decapolis, this is in chapter 7, Jesus had healed a man who was deaf and unable to speak. And then in chapter 8, in the first ten verses, the Lord, still in the region of the Decapolis, still in uh, a Gentile region had fed 4,000 with seven loaves of bread. That all has preceded. The point is that Jesus was in Gentile area, outside of Israel, and there he encountered faith and met needs as he had been among them. And now, as he comes, uh, matter of fact, notice how chapter 7 concludes. This is verse uh, 36 and 37. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone about the man who had been healed of his deafness. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So the Lord in Gentile regions has encountered faith again and again. Now he comes back to Galilee and immediately encounters unbelief. The Pharisees have questions for him. We would like to have a sign from heaven. Darken the sun or cause a star to fall from the, from the sky. Bring a comet, some heavenly sign. And notice their motive. It says in verse 11, to test him. Perazzo is the Greek verb. They're not um, interested really in a sign so that they can believe. They want to test him so that he, he does not provide a sign and give them another excuse to disbelieve. They are determined not to believe. We know already in previous experiences in Galilee, Jesus has been, or the Pharisees have said that he is casting out demons by the power of Satan. So they are determined in their, in their unbelief. Now, 
It is the same today. Again and again, I want us to think about today and what we're learning about our own time from the text of Scripture. Many today ask for a sign. Why doesn't God do a miracle today? And uh, I want to ask the question, what are the dynamics of unbelief? Why do people reject Christ? Well, of course, that question is complicated and there are many answers, but I'm only going to focus on a couple of them. Why do people reject the Savior and why, what, are, what are the dynamics of unbelief as illumined by the Pharisees in this passage? Well, first of all, I think is pride. I don't need Jesus. The Pharisees were sure they didn't need Jesus because, uh, after all, uh, they were more righteous than he. They observed the traditions and he did not. And so they don't need him. And people today are trusting in their own righteousness as well. They're, they're proud. And that's one of the reasons that people think they don't need the Lord. Another one is the distorted picture syndrome. The Pharisees had a distorted picture. The Messiah, when he comes, will be like David, uh, a military Messiah. He will deliver us from foreign powers. He'll be like David and Solomon, a temple builder. Jerusalem will be the greatest city on the earth. He'll rule from Jerusalem over all the earth. And they had, they had these distorted expectations. And people today have the same problem. Distorted expectations of God. People think that God should order the world exactly the way they think he should. You can hear people say, well, if there's a God of power and love, why doesn't he take care of this COVID problem? Why is it that so many have died from, from this COVID thing? Oh, 200,000 Americans. Uh, no, they say there is no God in heaven who loves us and is powerful. Otherwise, he would do what I expect. And he would, uh, he would handle this. They say the same thing about 9-11. Where was God when terrorists plowed planes into the Twin Towers? Where was God? God has to conform to my expectations for me to believe. The distorted picture syndrome. Another reason is the I know better complex. The Pharisees were sure that they knew Jesus was not the Messiah because he did not observe their traditions. That we know better than Jesus does. Jesus uh, did not know as much as they and so they rejected him. And people do the same thing today. Uh, Jesus believed in creation. We now know that we're the product of evolution. Therefore, Jesus is wrong. I don't know if you know the name um, of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a British mathematician and philosopher, wrote an essay once entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. In the essay, he explained that Jesus was supposed to be the best and the wisest of men. But since Jesus believed in hell, he could not be the best and wisest of men. And so Bertrand Russell did not believe in Jesus. Instead of 
responding to the warnings of Jesus about the dangers of hell and condemnation, he rejected Jesus because Jesus did not know as much as, as he did. Tragic victim of the I know better syndrome. So notice how Jesus responds to this. He, he knows what they're asking. He knows that they, they're really not motivated by an earnest desire to believe in the Messiah, but rather to reject Jesus. And it says that he sighed in frustration. The word appears only here in the whole Bible. A deep sigh, and he leaves them. He leaves them. Of course, so many signs had already been given. Everywhere Jesus had gone, the lame were leaping and the blind could see and the deaf could hear. The, the, um, the lepers were cleansed of leprosy. And the, uh, the, uh, the sick were well. Everywhere he had gone, everywhere he had gone, the signs had been so numerous. And yet, they reject him and refuse to believe. You see, many will not believe no matter the evidence. Even if Jesus had produced a sign from heaven, they would not believe because they would have said it was certainly some sort of a chance event. You see, some people are determined not to believe no matter what. An example. Later on, we learn from the Gospel of John that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The Jewish leaders said, well, we'll have to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus because many are believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. Determined to disbelieve no matter the evidence. I've experienced this, and I'm sure you have too. In Oneonta, the pastors were asked to write articles that would appear in the paper. Uh, when my turn came one time, I wrote an article about God speaking to all of us all the time in creation. All we have to do is look around and we see God speaking to us in the wisdom of the world he has made, his power, his magnificence, his grace revealed in creation. Well, uh, one of the readers contacted me and wanted to meet. We met at a coffee shop back in the times when people just met and lived normally. And um, we met at a coffee shop and talked together. And uh, he was a scientist, an empiricist, and tried to restrict me to a narrow band of evidence that could be presented. He wanted to know how I knew that God existed and uh, tried to say that he, uh, no appeal to ancient documents, no appeal to ancient history, and tried to restrict evidence that could be considered. And so we talked. I finally said to him, you know, let me just call him, uh, I'll call him Dan, uh, Dan, you want God to crawl into a Petri dish or into a test tube so you can examine him. And, um, of course, God is not going to do that. And I concluded our conversation by just reciting or reminding him of a story that Jesus told about two men, one named Lazarus, one named, well, one is just a rich man, 
both died and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom in paradise and the rich man died and found himself in hell. The rich man pleaded that Abraham send Lazarus to warn his brothers so that they would not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the man who's in torment in Hades says, no, they won't believe that, but if someone is raised from the dead, then they'll believe. And Abraham replied, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if someone is raised from the dead. And my point was to my friend, whom I'm calling Dan. Dan, you're not open. You're not open to the evidence. You don't want to consider evidence. You want to be confirmed in your own opinion. And that is the problem with unbelief. When unbelief becomes hardened resistance, determined to disbelieve no matter what, we are in a very, very, very dangerous place. The text says that Jesus sighed deeply, refused to give them a sign, and left them. We need to think about that. There comes a time when God leaves us to our unbelief, to our stubbornness, to our folly. That's a tragic, tragic statement. So, first of all, we have in this passage the dynamics of unbelief, Christ rejected. But then we have the, what I'm going to call the, the, the spread of disbelief. The believers are tainted or affected by the unbelief around them. The passage goes on with the disciple, Jesus and the disciples going across the lake on a boat. Now, we're now on the Sea of Galilee. They're going across the lake in a boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus said to them, Be careful, beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And, and so yeast spreads, of course. Yeast spreads in bread so that um, a little bit of yeast affects the whole loaf. And Jesus is warning against the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And indeed, their, their consequent discussion reveals their spiritual dullness. They said, oh, it's because we have no bread. We haven't got enough bread. That's what he means. And Jesus is astonished at their dullness. And we, we see, he, he says to them, do you have ears and don't, don't hear? Do you have eyes and you don't see? Are your hearts hardened? Do you not remember? They themselves were present when Jesus had fed 5,000 Jews with only five loaves and two fish. And, and they were present when he had fed the 4,000 in the Decapolis. Matter of fact, they themselves had distributed the, ba- the food and they had collected the basketfuls of leftovers. It's, this, this passage is almost comical. They, they're worried that they don't have enough lunch for 13 in the boat when they had seen Jesus' miraculous power. And Jesus, don't you see? Don't you understand? They're, they're, 
And, and the, the image of yeast suggests that the unbelief of the leaders is affecting them and, um, and influencing them. Are you sharing in their, in their refusal to believe and their slowness to believe? Uh, unbelief spreads. We, we do know that unbelief spreads. It spreads in families, unbelieving parents, uh, unbelieving children. Unbelief can spread in communities of faith, in communities of believers. I remind you, for example, of the 12 spies who were sent out, and 10 spies came back with a negative report. Yes, the land is fruitful and wonderful, and all of this bounty is there, but the cities, the walls are high, and there are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers, and we can't go in the unbelieving report came back from 10 of the spies and their unbelief spread in the community. So beware, Jesus is saying, of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Unbelief can spread. People may be unwilling to attempt great things for God because they are fearful of a challenge. Fearful and unbelieving. So what is Jesus' reaction to the slowness to understand of the disciples? I mean, we have to say, look, the disciples are believers. They do believe. They are following. They're learning. And what is Jesus' reaction to them? Well, his reaction is that he teaches them. Jesus is patient with them. Matter of fact, we learn in chapter 9, verse 30, that he's devoting time, 30 and 31, He's devoting time to teach his disciples. He's nourishing their faith. And that is an encouragement to me and to you. We are believers who sometimes are doubtful or even filled with doubts. And the Lord is patient and strengthens our faith and teaches us to grow in our faith. I think that's very important to see. Matter of fact, let me just read 930 Uh, 31 they left that place and passed through Galilee Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples patiently he led them along and taught them now in fact what we want as believers today is we want strong faith we want growing faith we want to be people who trust God don't we Let me quote Jesus' words from Mark 11. And I hope you can show this on the screen. Have faith in God, Jesus said. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus is teaching us to trust in our God and express our faith in prayer and expect God to answer. In a passage in Matthew, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Faith as small as a mustard seed is very small. 
But a little faith that is placed in a great God, in a God who is infinite in power and mercy, a little faith accomplishes a great deal. A little faith placed in Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior who was crucified for our sins, who suffered for us, who was buried, who was raised again the third day. A little faith placed in a great Savior results in salvation. I was seven years old when I became a Christian. And I knew, I knew nothing about anything except a little bit. <laughs> the preacher told us that Jesus suffered for us and that if we needed to be forgiven, he would forgive us. Well, that's about what I knew. And I prayed and Jesus heard my prayer. He is a strong, powerful, magnificent Savior. A little faith placed in him results in transformation. And Jesus is teaching us to pray and to trust God. Christ is calling us to faith, to deep trust expressed in expectant prayer. How can we grow... Let me, let me conclude this sermon by asking the question, how can we grow in faith? We want to be people of faith, people who trust God, people who depend on the Lord and, and, and who can pray with great expectation. How can we grow in faith? I'm going to suggest five things. First of all, read the Bible. It may sound very simple, may sound very ordinary, but it's a simple fact. You want to grow your faith Read the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We read in Romans 10. The distorted picture syndrome is replaced by open-hearted listening. If the, if the Pharisees would have just set aside their distorted picture and listened to Jesus, listened with open hearts, they would have been instructed and they would have learned and we must come to the scriptures to listen with open hearts, to be taught, and to learn from what God says. Secondly, to grow in our faith, meditate on God's greatness. This is quite important. Meditate on who it is we trust in. Matter of fact, read the prophets. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read Daniel. The prophets will give you an expanded view of the greatness of God that will expand your soul. When I was um, a college student, one of my diseases was a compulsion to be constantly introspective. I was constantly examining myself for my sin, my failures, one of the persons who counseled me at that time, I was sort of paralyzed in my introspection. He said, Gary, you need to take 10 looks at God for every one time you look at yourself. I gradually began to realize how true that was. And I began to, to begin my times of prayer with just taking 
time to praise God for who he is, to recite the attributes of God. Maybe take 10 minutes just to meditate and magnify the greatness of God. After you do that, you can pray for anything. Anything is extremely small. Any request you might make, any problem you have is very, very tiny in the presence of our God. Is his arm too short that he cannot save? So think about something you long for. Think about God-sized requests for prayer. Oh God, I long for the Hudson Valley to be a place where the gospel is known all throughout every home and every apartment and every condominium. Lord, I desire that this church be filled 800 people on a Sunday morning. I long for the day when we have to have two services because God has moved in hearts. The gospel has brought forth fruit and people are coming to the Lord. I long for our country to be transformed by the power of Christ. Pray. God-sized request when we meditate on who God is. I know a an evangelist in the Sindh province of Pakistan. The Sindh province is a province in southeastern Pakistan, about 30 million Sindhis. Sindhis is spelled S-I-N-D-H-I, Sindhis. He's praying in a place where there's almost no faith. Very, very few believers, probably 0.01% of the population is Christian. That man is praying for 30,000 churches in the Sindh province. 30,000 churches in the Sindh province. That blows my mind. But that's a God-sized request. That's what we can pray. Our faith grows when we know who God is. Third, replace pride with humility. We need God We need to fall on our faces before him. The Pharisees thought they didn't need Jesus. We need him. Replace pride with humility. Fourth, learn from your experiences with God. We've seen God at work in our lives. We've seen him answer prayer. We've seen astonishing things in our own experience. And that is one of the ways to grow our faith. I remind you of 1 Samuel 17. When Goliath was challenging the armies of Israel and everyone was afraid to face him. And David, a shepherd boy, came and he said, What's this? And uh, when he said, well, I'll fight him. I'll, I'll, I'll fight him. Um, they were challenging him and he said, ha, uh, the, uh, the Lord has rescued me from the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will just be another. God will give the victory. The, the, the hero of 1 Samuel 17 is not David. It is God. God granted David the victory. He knew that God had delivered him in the past and God will deliver him. Now this, this Philistine warrior is nothing before God, his faith. He had learned from his previous experiences with God. One more, trust in the will of God. Number five, 
Instead of the I know better syndrome as the Pharisees had, we need to have the Father knows best conviction. The Father knows best. He knows what's right. Sometimes things happen that we don't understand. Sometimes things come into our lives that are exceedingly difficult, painful. But the Father knows best. He knows best. We trust in him. That's the lesson of the book of Job. Well, thank God the Lord Jesus patiently instructed his disciples. They were believers struggling to trust. And he patiently works with us too. Let's bow together in prayer.